they call him the archer of the century. And anyone from the time that I started in archery, certainly highly aware of who Daryl Pace is. Daryl Pace won two individual Olympic and world championship titles during his career. And in 2011, World Archery declared him to be Archer of the Century. He's done something that no other individual has done before, which is, uh, in a way, to defend his Olympic title. Uh, although, specifically, that opportunity was taken away from him by government boycott of the 1980 Olympic Games. Daryl is still the only two-time individual gold medalist in the sport of archery. And Daryl, it is a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Uh, glad to be here, George. You know, um, I'd like to start out maybe by talking about your early career. You, you took up the sport of archery at about the age of 13, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, yeah, May 2nd, 1970, 9.30 a.m. <laughs> well, there you go. You can't dial it in more precisely than that. And you walked into uh, Charlie Pearson's place in Ohio, right? That's kind of how it started? Yeah, it was actually with a coupon book. Uh, back back in the day, you know, you had these, well, even today, I guess you got these coupon books, buy one, for, buy one get one free type stuff for pizzas and restaurants, whatever. And there was one, there were some sports in there, bowling, and, you know, it was one in there for archery, buy an hour, get an hour free. And they said, well, why don't you know since I was 13 they said you know my dad didn't really want to shoot and he's like well they so we called him and then they said well why don't you come in Saturday morning and start in our genetic program well the first I went and in the first week I got my you know you could get the yeoman and uh junior bowman and then the next week I got the junior archer and, and had, it was uh, kind of fun so they, they they had kind of uh, badges or, or uh, so yeah, on, you know, eight, uh, yeah, eight, stripes, eight, right? Yeah, eight different ranks from all the way up to, you know, master, expert, and Olympian. And uh, it was about the third week I, I said to Charlie, because, you know, they start you on a bare bow, and, and I was making ranks one after another, and then they, they said, you sure you never shot before? I was like, no. I said, well, actually, no, the third week I think I said, can I sh get one of those bows with a sight on it? Well, I had shot a lot of BB guns and pellet guns when I was real young, which taught me, my dad taught me aiming and, you know, one shot, trigger squeeze, everything. And uh, put a sight on the bow. And then all of a sudden my groups went to like zeroed in. And these were those, you know, cheap little range bows. And then the third week, the fourth week, the fifth week, I was just making rank after rank. And they said, you sure you've never shot before? I was like, no, but uh, I knew how to aim. You know, just matter of learning how to pull it back and let it go. But uh, you know, Charlie, back in those days, you know, it wasn't. We didn't have the wealth and the internet and all that. It was uh, you learned a lot, a lot of it just on your own. And in fact, you've been quoted by journalists in the past as saying that you really didn't have a coach, but to some degree, you got some guidance, didn't you? Uh, beginning, yeah, I'd say you know, beginning, cor correct, good beginning uh guidance or instruction but the the biggest part was just hours and hours of you know on your own uh, pra uh practice i mean i've got some old eight millimeter films you wouldn't believe it was my form it was the old power archery and why you know i exploded and realized well that didn't work you know and then you try different things and i can remember back uh 
back in the day of the PAA, when the PA Professional Archery Association was real big, you know, I remember going to those tournaments and looking at, you know, Vic Berger, Steve Robinson, Al Warner, all the big names back then. And I, I, I was just a little kid, like 14, 15 years old. And I'd say, how do you, how do you hold the string? And one of them would say, well, I, you know, I hold a deep hook. And the next one would say, well, I use the two bottom fingers. And the next one would say, well, I use the two top fingers in the group. And it was like, no one had, you know, a, a, a consistent, no one was the same. So I worked for hours and hours how to, well, probably one of the two probably things that are probably famous for my background was, was the release. I mean, everyone knows it was uh, very unusual. Uh, you, you, in fact, Easton was one that did the, uh, the, you know, the high, the slow speed video or vid- movies of those or videos. Right, back then. right. And, but I worked for hours trying to figure out what was the best way to hold the string to get the fastest aeroflight. And back in the day, I had absolutely the fastest um, release. I remember testing with back when the releases first came out. Um, you know, just testing with shooting release and then shooting with my fingers and seeing how close I could get to a release aid. And I got to when I was roughly about three feet per second slower than a release, but the average archer was anywhere between six and eight slower than a release aid. And, we, and I did a lot of testing with other people too, just to see what was normal. But I, I figured out a way to, how to hold a string, how to release a string, which you know, eliminated a lot of errors. Absolutely. So, so maybe uh, tell us about that a little bit. The, where was the string on your fingers? And uh, it seemed Uh, to me having, having handled a couple of your tabs, you had a lot of bottom finger uh, pressure at at, at a certain point, at least. No, it's actually about 70% on the middle finger because that's your longest, strongest one. About 25% was on the third finger and just barely, you know, like 5% just to keep the tab straight on the top finger. So, so mostly, the, mostly the two bottom fingers. Yeah. It's like 70 on the middle, about 25 on the third. And the reason why it had a lot of callus on the third finger, it looked like there was a lot of third, but it's actually straighter because it's, it's a shorter finger, but right. there's not, there's not that much pressure on it. The fastest way was to get, uh, your 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 middle strongest finger because that's the one that's in line with your arm the most. Um, you know, for, for a fast release. Sure. And and in terms of the um, sequence that you went through with your shot, could you describe that for us from the standpoint of uh, walking us through the steps? Because uh, again, you know, let me back up. Back in '83 when I started shooting recurve when I switched from compound to recurve. Uh, I'd always shot fingers, but uh, my coach, uh, a fellow by the name of Leo Baldwin in New York, would show me 16 and uh, I guess they were 16 millimeter films or maybe they were eight millimeter films of you. And basically his admonition was do it like this guy. <laughs> of course, everybody knew who you were, but you know, in, in that time frame. Um, not having the benefit of, as you pointed out earlier, uh, the internet and all of the other resources that we have today, uh, having a film of Daryl Pace was as good as it got from the standpoint of learning how to shoot. And uh, it seemed to me like Daryl Pace's shot was a very deliberate shot. Every step was 
while it was a fluid thing, every step was very deliberate. Can you either shoot me down or back me up on that? Okay, way back in, like I say, in the early 70s, was there was a, the World Archery Center, and they taught, you know, the, the 10 steps. Now, they, they've changed now, but it was a stance, knock, draw, anchor, aim, release, follow through. Right. And then, you know, I, I went through that, but I dropped one one part of that, and that was the release. Um, I go back to that. Um, so it was just stance, not draw, anchor, aim, uh, follow through. I never worried about release. I learned to shoot subconscious. That was the main trick. If, the, and the reason I go back to those videos, if you watch the release, was I, I was one of the only ones that had a totally subconscious release, which meant the clicker was my trigger. Um, and now that nowadays I, you know, even when I do seminars or whatever, I'm not, who knows how far this podcast is going, but, um, I ask, you know, I'll get 50 or a hundred or how many other people's in, 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 a, in a, and I, I'm going to give this away my, my tricks, I guess. And that is, I, I always ask, what is the most, what is the most important thing in archery? What would you say? What is the absolute number one, most important thing in archery? I would say that uh, the subconscious release, that is knowing when the thing's going to go, but not not reacting to the clicker, but making it happen is probably the most important thing for me uh, looking at it. Right. I get all kinds of answers, you know, eyesight, practice, uh, form, which is generic. Um, but the number one thing is body alignment. And absolutely everything revolves around body alignment. If you're slightly out of a line, there's days when I'd have a slump or whatever. It's when your body is not aligned. And I had to learn that. And, and I probably one of the benefits was, I, you know, I, Doug Brothers, you know, big Doug, you know, big, oh, strong, yeah. and like Rick Bednar. Those guys were super behemoth, strong, Ed Elias. And, you know, I was like, man, I dreamed to have muscles like those guys. But when we got into tournaments and under pressure, I, what had happened was when I was 15 years old, get a load of this, um, it was my first Olympic trials, I guess I was 5'10", 100 and let's see, I was 118 pounds, roughly 115, 118 pounds. I was a string bean. Uh, they used to always laugh and say they could see both stand behind me. You could see both sides of the boat. <laughs> But what it create, what it caused me to be able to have to do to, in order to shoot the bow weights back then, that the big guys were, you know, shooting 46, 48 pounds, was I had to learn to use my body in line, using my bone structure, not muscles. So by doing that, by getting, learning to get in line, it, it, it gave me virtually super strength. So when I got into shoot offs, you know, they said, you're, your stabilizer didn't shake. Well, most, you know, not probably 90 back then, 90% of the archers were using muscles. You know, they thought, oh, like Victor Sidork, who won his 90, you know, the 73 world championships it was all strength. Yeah. Um, it was all strength, but 99% of the time I would succeed or, or outshoot them because under pressure, bone structure is, and again, like I say, it goes back to alignment. Then I go into what is the what would you think the number two thing is in, important in archery? I imagine timing might be one of the things on the list. Very good, very good, very close. Timing comes from 
the the length, uh, your your clicker length. And to me, the the first thing that you got to work on is body alignment. After you get that, it all re it also revolves around your clicker length. Because if you're within a millimeter, if it's too far back or too far forward, your your body can't expand at that pivot point. And Which that's why feeds directly into the alignment because if the alignment's off, you're going to be off by multiple millimeters. Right. So to me, getting that clicker link, I was always, you know, just tinkering just a little bit with it. You know, I'd shoot some arrows, whatever, and say, oh, you know, didn't go off soon enough. Did it you know, went off too late. Uh, I learned later. In fact, it took years to figure that out because there was times when I had my clicker too far back. Heck, I'd blow arrows off the rest. And it's like, it because I was trying to expand too far. It was, the clicker wasn't going off when I wanted it to. And you Once were always you pretty aware of where the clicker was because you used chisel points, which gave you the ability to determine just where you were with the clicker, right? Ah, you learned the secret there. I, I had a hard time with bullets because I couldn't tell exactly where the draw length was. And I still shoot uh, chisel points. <laughs> knowing knowing where the clicker is is uh, fundamentally what allowed you to let the rest of the program run, right? Uh, yeah. In fact, you know, I I, I know you talked to Rick McKinney and stuff, but you know, he he even said it was, and Jay said it was just unbelievable standing behind. You know, when they you know because we always shot back to back and stuff, and they say. They'd watch that, you know, I'd draw up and hold and my clicker would be one millimeter, you know, just right there to go. And then I would hold and nothing would move until my pin was exactly where I wanted it. And I could make the clicker go anytime I wanted to, which was a big advantage, especially in, you know, with aluminum arrows in those days and in wind. Uh, I loved competing in wind because I could make it go anytime I wanted to, where the normal, let's say the average archer would just be trying to pull through the clicker. And then you're trying to time your sight going from blue ring to blue ring, back and forth, back and forth, where all I had to do was just get my pin somewhere in a seven, six ring, wherever I wanted it. And then I could make it go anytime I wanted. So true control over the shot was one of the things that made it different for you than, than other shooters, because as you point out, uh, and, and as I think I alluded to earlier, a lot of folks are at the mercy of the clicker. The clicker is making them shoot. You're making it click and executing the shot and exactly. maintaining that clean release. Right. Well, because the clicker was my trigger. I mean, it was just, I never opened my fingers. All I did was relax. It was more like click, relax, follow through. Which is what gave you that distinctive follow through that, uh, that so many people tried to emulate, but maybe didn't understand how you got there in the first place. It was because once the clicker went off, I was totally relaxed. The other thing is, I always said from my left wrist out, uh, and it was a misnomer. Everybody thought that I pushed the bow forward and made that bow jump forward and hit the wrist sling, and then I'd drop it and all this stuff. It wasn't. My hand, if you look very closely at slow motion, was totally relaxed. My wrist was totally relaxed. My hand grip, I could shoot a high grip. I could shoot a low grip. I, you know, I designed a lot of grips, but. Uh, and that was critical, but uh, that's a whole nother story. But m from my left wrist out, it was always relaxed. My hand was totally relaxed. You could walk up and move any of my bow hand fingers at, at any time during my draw and they're like rubber.
or yep. soft. Ab absolutely. And in fact, uh, even today, I use that same example by making shooters remove their sling. You can tell real quick. If, oh, if they let it go. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, and uh, it's surprising how many shooters actually grab that bow and don't even know they're doing it. Um, right. You know, as long as you're there to catch it for them after right. the first couple of iterations, they, re, you know, you get this bug eyed look like, oh, my goodness, is that how it's supposed to be? Right. And people people don't know because they didn't go through that iterative process that you did. You know, I think that uh, they follow a process that they see, but they don't understand what's inside it to make it happen the way that they see it. And I think that that is something that a lot of folks don't get even today. Possibly. Yeah. With that said, the ability to do that under pressure. One of the things that you were legendary for among us less accomplished shooters was your ability, apparent ability to look at the scoreboard and not be freaked out by seeing yourself on top. Uh, you were able to uh, mentally deal with pressure in a way that was different from most of us at the time. What was really going on there? Uh, basically, it's it's just like, you know, when you're, let's say you look up at the board, you're in fifth and you're, you know, you're 90 meters. Well, back then it was 90 meters. You're, you know, you're 12 points down on the leader. It's like this end, you look at the guy ahead of you and you say, well, I, if I could pick, you just, I just always wanted to pick up, you know, it's kind of like there's a whole, there's th four days of shooting. So I was just trying to pick up points on fourth, third. Once I moved into third, I was going to pick up point. You know, you try to pick up points on the guy in second, maybe look at the guy in first. Next thing you know, you're in first. And it's always funny. Well, you remember watching the scoreboard years ago. I mean, guys would get on, they shoot a big, big end to first end, and then you'd never see them on the board again. That's oh, yeah. Second end. And it's because it's like, it's like, <gasps> uh oh, I'm in first. Well, I never thought I was in, you know, I might be in the lead, but I'm, you're not first. But even if once I got ahead, if I was one point ahead or tied for first, I tried to pick up points on, you know, create a gap. And it was just a, all I did was watch that whoever was ahead of me or behind me and try to pick up. You know, you still execute one shot, you know, the, the, the three arrows in your quiver, six arrows in your quiver, whatever. But I always tried to just pick up points. And that's that's how the margins came so big. Like, well, you know, the seventy-five world championship was won by ninety points. What what's your what's your goal once you get thirty or forty? Well, it never was really a lead. It was just I always called it a cushion. Because what if your bowstring breaks? What if your sight falls off? What if your button flies apart? What if your arrow rests fall off? You know, the spring broke. Uh, and in fact, you know, I pretty I will I know for a fact that you know I had a. Uh, when I lost the world championship by one point in 70, uh, 81, 80, 83, 83, wasn't it? No, 81 against the uh, Kiosti and my, wow. my, my knocking point was slipping and I didn't know it. So, you know, I just didn't have enough cushion. You know, I would have made it through 30 meters, but you know, I, I lost it at 30 meters be only because my knocking point slipped. Didn't know it until after the tournament, I looked at it like, whoa, this, this arrow's way up. But anyway, uh, to me, it was getting those margins and learning to shoot that pressure was just a matter of building a cushion. It wasn't winning. It wasn't, oh, I, you know, I'm winning the tournament. 
I, um, I didn't go to a tournament to win. I went not to lose. So I right. never had the pressure in my mind that, you know, I got to win this tournament. I got to win this tournament. No, it was always, I don't want to lose this tournament. This was something that um, you didn't have to learn from a sports psychologist. This was more or less self-imposed, wasn't it? No, sports psychologists went crazy when I told them that. They went, you can't think like that. I was like, well, I do. You know, it's like it's it's not it's not what they were teaching because they were teaching positive thoughts, positive thoughts. And I was like, well, I don't go to a tournament to win. I go not to lose. I it's just and the other thing I always had was winning is easy. Defending is hard. Yeah, because after after you finally went, you know, win a tournament, whether it's your local tournament or a state tournament, whatever, you know, you go back the next year. Hey, there's a defending champion. Well, it's that much harder to win the second time because everybody's gunning for you. When you uh, when you started out in archery, you were attracted to the individual aspect of it to some degree because um, your personality didn't deal well with team sport situation that maybe you had some members of the team that didn't participate at the level you would have liked. Um, is that an accurate statement? Uh, yes, very accurate. Uh, I, I, I akin that to like when I was like 11 and 12, I played little league baseball. You know, you get up there and you'd go four for four, big base hits, double, you know, turn a double play, do two fantastic plays and we'd lose the game. The next game you go to, I go 0 for 4, uh, an error on an overthrow or something stupid, and we win. So, you know, it, it never made sense that, you know, what I, what your performance was, was a result of, was the end result of what you, what you did. You know, you can, you can play bad and win and you can play good and lose. In archery, there is no room for error. And I like that pressure. Always like that. Always, you could never attain attain perfection, but you could only get as close as you could to it. In other words, no one's ever going to, to me, ever ever going to shoot a fourteen forty feet with fingers. It just it ain't going to happen. No one's going to, you know, Tiger Woods could never shoot eighteen on eighteen holes. But it's that pursuit that is attractive to you. Pursuit for further perfection, yes. Yeah, and, I think that's, you know, something a lot of people are probably nodding their heads right now, you know, because everybody in our sport can probably relate to that on some level. And I'll tell you one other, what, what I did have one goal and that it, when I, well, I guess when I teach a lot of kids now is even in the upper level is, is not learning to shoot the good shots. You know, you shot, I know you shot an arrow that just felt effortless. You just, it just come, it just comes off perfect right in the 10 ring and you go oh that was easy yeah and then you and then about three or four arrows later it, it, it happens again you go oh that was sweet well as you get better and better in archery it isn't the good shots you look at a scorecard and you say you know if i'd have got rid of that six ring that i shot or you know i could have shot three points better if that was just a nine you learn not to shoot it's just getting rid of your bad shots and how, how many tournaments have you went to that you said, you know, well, I had like eight bad shots, you know, just you either class on, didn't feel right. 
didn't, you know, the clicker didn't go off when you wanted it to. I, I know that happens to thousands of people. Absolutely. So my goal was to shoot a tournament that I didn't have any bad shots. Now, I didn't shoot perfect score. You're not going to. No one is. Well, indoors maybe, but not outdoors. And that, believe it or not, happened in 1984 in the games, Olympic Games. I actually literally remember shooting 288 perfect executed shots, not one weak, not one, you know, pushed, dropped, anything. They were all, uh, even John, and I asked John Williams, like, he was, you know, he's standing by me. I said, what am I doing? He goes, you're doing fine. Keep it up. You know, it's like all I could say was, because I virtually was in a shooting machine mode. Every shot was just flawless. I didn't shoot perfect, but I shot, I ended the best I could. Yeah, I never we, shot. Uh, it took, well, I'm, what I, my, my bottom line is it took 14 years from the time I started to shoot a tournament with no bad shots. And clearly, uh, that was something that you were able to engage in more frequently than anyone else at the time. Um, you know, what what about things like setting that world record in Japan? Uh, when you showed up in Japan, got a brand new sight on your bow, didn't have any marks on it, so you you measured from your arrow to your aperture to get your right. marks for your four distances. Tell us the story of, uh, of that day in Japan. Well, actually, go, go, before we left, uh, I had gotten a new site, new, new Shibuya site, and it was, uh, I was like, because it had the upper and lower bracket, and I had the other regular site, and I was like, well, I'd like to try this site in Japan. I'll get site settings when I get over there, not knowing. So, you know, accurate settings. So I said, well, I'll get close ones here. So I just put an arrow in the bow and I measured, you know, the distance between the arrow and the sight uh, for each distance. And then just drew a line. I was like, well, off of the old site, wrote those numbers down. And then I put the new site on and I measured from the arrow up to the site. So yeah, that's close. You know, that's close. Well, the 1341 could have been probably even higher. <laughs> I had good site settings. Yeah. Well, I had missed, uh, the flights got messed up. I missed the first flight, so I got a flight the next day. I ended up arriving at 0400, like in the morning in Japan. We had to be up at 6.30 or something, so I got like two and a half, three hours sleep. Um, we get out to the field, and back those days, you got six arrows practice. That was it, not this 45-minute yep. deal. You get six arrows. My first three arrows missed the target low. I'm like, huh? So I kept moving the site down. I finally got, a, I think, a four and then a seven and then maybe a low nine or something like that. So I said, well, here we go. So, yeah, I was not really set. I, I did I did good at uh, 90. I think I had 312. Rick had 318. Um, but then we went to 70 meters. And I'm like, uh-oh, now. Now what do I do with the site settings? Do I move move it down below or do I trust what I measured? <sighs> yeah, it was, it was nerve wracking. So the first one I shot, I think I shot a low eight or, and then I was like, well, click it down a little bit. And then I, I shot, the uh, shot. I kind of fudged it down a little bit, shot an eight on the first arrow. And then 
uh, moved it down a bunch and then still and did real well. I mean, I shot like a three thirty three. I think Rick had three twenty seven. Anyway, we ended up we were both twenty points over the world record, and I was like, well, it was a matter of who's going to do it. Going into fifty after lunch, I knew Rick was you know phenomenal at fifty. He was the best fifty meter shooter for years. And I said, well, I just got to put together my best 50, which I did. I shot 350, 335, and he had 327. And so once I had that, like I say, the cushion, um, I got the, and then the sight settings were closer because the minute of angle was less and all that. So I, uh, 30 meters, I started, my sight setting was on. And the only four nines that I shot on that record, they were out of the 10 ring, the less than the width of the scoring line. So it could have barely, I was very close to shooting even a, even a 360 on that. Were you aware that you were approaching the world record at that point? Oh, I, I already held it. Yeah. I, but yeah, I knew exactly what. So you were conscious the whole time of, of what you were doing. And again, you, you thrived on that. That was a different you know, mindset than most shooters. Right. Well, I mean, I, I love pressure. I mean, I remember my best friend, Rick Ray, was we were out at the Texas uh, World Team Trials one year, and I had already had the record. This was before 79, so this was probably like 77 or something. And uh, halfway through 30, I said, hey, Rick, I said, or Ray, and I said, I'm, I'm five down. I said, if I clean out, I said, I can break the world record. He goes, bet you a case of Coke, you can't. He bet, he, he said, bet you a case of Coke that, uh, that I couldn't clean out 30 and I shot the next six thirties. Yeah. But, and then found out that it wasn't, they didn't star that trials. They oh. didn't send in the paperwork for, so, uh, so it didn't stand a as an official world record. It wasn't my book, but it did stand right because they did send in twenty five dollars to World Archery or whatever. So yeah, but you did set a world record multiple times. Um, you know, in nineteen seventy three, after winning your first national championship, you set a new world record on a, on a Starfita because that was a registered one. Your first world record of uh, the fourteen forty round of twelve ninety one. Did it again in seventy five. Uh, that was in 74, yeah. 74. And and you won the world championship uh, that same year. Uh, 75. Right. Yep. And you did it with aluminum arrows, something that a lot of yeah. folks don't, don't recall. You know, I, I think that that's a, um, an interesting topic to switch to now. Equipment over right. the years. The equipment has changed in some ways, and in some other ways it hasn't changed much. In your estimation, what's the most important equipment changes you've seen since the beginning of your career? Uh, carbon arrow. And absolutely it was the carbon arrow that changed everything. Uh, and that was because of diameter. And it just goes back to simple theory that, you know, faster arrow speeds, but the diameter of the arrow... A good example would be is if you're shooting carbons and the furthest, I mean, when I switched to carbons, I had a hard time adapting because I was, I knew exactly what wind drift would drift an arrow. 
So if you got a 20 mile an hour wind and you're, or a 15 mile an hour wind and you're aiming at the edge of the nine ring with an aluminum arrow, I'm aiming out the six or five ring. So at that same time, every time that wind blows, of course, you know, you get three arrows or whatever in your quiver. Every shot that I take, I'm aiming in a five ring. I cut loose. I guess it right. Boom. I catch a nine or a 10. Well, you're shooting carbons. You're aiming at the edge of the nine ring. If the, and then you shoot a good one, you get a nine or a 10. Well, the same shot next time we both draw up, the wind, you just about ready to cut loose. The wind dies, you cut loose. I get a six to the right or whatever. You're still aiming in the, in the nine ring. You're going to get a nine. So every time the wind, you miscalculate the wind of the littlest bit, you're going to gain one, two, three, four, you know, points on me uh, using aluminums. So what it's also done is, you know, that those big point spreads were, you know, like I was going back to like in this, you know, the worlds of the game, you know, what do you want to say this? 76 games with 69 points. Yeah, those 60, so, 70, 80, 90 point cushions that you used to accumulate. Right. You know, 84 was 52 points. Uh, 76 was uh, 69 points. And then, of course, uh, World Championships was 90 points in 75. Those those were gained because of, because of being able to over, over or, or better calculate and time the win. Um, but the reason is nowadays the scores are so close. I mean, like picking out the, the first to the top, the top, you know, your first 10 archers, there's only what, five, six points between them. Exactly. So, and, and that's because of, I mean, yeah, we've got newer cart, you know, string materials. We've got, you know, CNC risers, uh, you know, different materials on the limbs, but the carbon arrow is, was, is this, I think, is what changed um, the most the most of, of anything as to now that the scores are so close. Even if you if you if you sent everybody back to aluminum arrows with the equipment we had today, I, you would see a much greater point spread and maybe uh, overall lower score um, for the people that hadn't figured things out the way you did differently than the rest of the field. Well, yeah, exactly. So the, or, or, or even the, what I'm saying is the archers today. Even if, if you put aluminum, you know the bigger diameter arrows in there, you're, you'll see a bigger point point spread. Sure. Would it be fair to say then that the advent of the AC arrow in 1983, uh, which was the first year that they were uh, more or less released to top shooters, would you say that that actually narrowed the gap between you and the rest of the field because of the fact that other people didn't have to worry so much about drift? And figuring it out. Oh, absolutely! It it narrowed all the scores up. But did it increase your score too, or do you think that? Um, do you think? Oh well, yeah, of course. Sure, it, it increases everybody's score, but it took the guy, it took the guy that was shooting twelve fifty up to thirteen hundred, and, sure. and the and the archers that were shooting thirteen hundred, yeah, we moved to thirteen ten. You know, let's say averages, whatever, or barely. 1300 to 1305, 1310. The, it took the 1100 archer and moved them to 1200. You know, it moved everybody from the bottom up because now you don't have to aim, you know, they don't have to guess as much. 
as an archer, the first, the hardest two things that were hardest for me to adapt to, and that was I, because I knew exactly what, like I said, the wind drift was, and it was adapting because most, I would say, for for almost two years, I kept missing. If the wind blew, I'd aim out seven ring, and I was like, oh, I don't have to aim out. You know, I kept missing more to into the wind than than shooting well. The other thing that it really changed psycho- psychological wasn't has nothing to do with, with scoring, but the psychological difference is you couldn't see them fly. Um, if you if you you know when you read about all the days of the York rounds and you know how people used to love to watch an arrow fly, and I and I and I still do because I still love to watch an arrow fly. It was that you know. 190 or 200 feet per second slow arrow flowing through the air hitting the tent you know hitting the gold making it dark um now we switched you know and then when the carbon started coming out you know like you said 83 84 and then they got thinner um you you didn't see them you shot and it was just like you're shooting a a, an an arrow because the arrow the arrow just went and then it hit the target and you go oh where did it hit because you couldn't see where they hit because they're so skinny and small, you had to use binoculars. I with aluminums, I knew when I shot a good arrow, I could see the arrow fly. I knew if it was going slightly right, it's going to be a right nine. Bang, it hits the target. Uh, the psychology really changed. Uh, not only, like I say, not only just the wind drift, but the psychology of watching the arrow fly and how it how an arrow felt to shoot. Uh, it cha- it changed. That makes sense. Absolutely. Uh, although I will say that uh, a lot of coaches back in the day used to say, "Don't watch your arrow fly." <laughs> we all do. <laughs> uh, sure. I mean, it was it was it was always neat to watch to watch, Well, because to me that was part. You do watch the arrow fly because you, that's part of your follow through. You know, one of my strongest memories of uh, just the beauty of watching an arrow fly was actually entering the venue in Atlantic City back when we had that uh, Atlantic City Classic. And everybody uh-huh. was shooting aluminums indoors at relatively long distance, you know, 60 yards, whatever it was. And just seeing that that arc of arrows from the side was yes. just beautiful. Yes, it was. You don't get to see of much of that much of them, now. Well, and everybody, used, you know, because it was indoors, you could use feathers or whatever. Oh, yeah. You had twenty one seventeens flying down there with feathers on them, and they, they, you know, they made a twenty uh, foot arc in the air. <laughs> yeah, but uh, you know that that uh, flight of the arrow thing uh, is one of the keys of television coverage today. You know, um, if you watch any of the coverage from the Olympic Games where they have high quality, high speed cameras, uh, a lot of folks uh, don't realize what arrows are doing on their way to the target and. Uh, and I think that that is right. one of the pleasures of our sport. Well, you, you, you could see it more when we shot. I mean, I'm sure even before my day when they shot, you know, uh, poor Orford Cedar, you know, air, those aluminum arrows. I mean, I'm sure the day you go back further, those aluminum arrows ruined everything, you know, yeah. <laughs> because they shot wood arrows. Uh, those aluminum arrows. Well, then, then, of course, in my era, it was like, oh, those carbon arrows, you know, they came in and they, changed everything well that's just technology but it did change i mean the aluminum still had that 
that feeling of seeing the flight where the, the carbon started changing. You know, and then even when you got into the you know the smaller ones, the X tens, uh, you literally couldn't hardly you barely saw a glimmer of what what they flew. For sure, that's a uh, that is a big change, and it, and it was quicker. So you know you're jumping, you know that that thirty or forty feet per second increase changes your 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 whole psychology of shooting. The other big difference, of course, is something that you uh, experienced personally transitioning in our sport as we tried to make it more spectator friendly. Um, in 1988, we had the Grand Feet around, and it was the first time that um, head-to-head competition became a part of the game. And that was a big change because, just to, not to allude too much to the story you told earlier about team sports, but that right. did change the nature of the game to a degree. No longer could you really necessarily set up the cushion uh, with, with that right. change, right? Right. Well, and, and I and I still believe till probably the day I die that total score, like golf, you know, I, I it, changing to the grand, you know, the grand feeder and now to the set matches and stuff like that. Um, it's sort of like you know I can go out and beat Tiger Woods on one hole if he has his absolute worst hole and shoots a double bogey and I and I and I shoot a and I'm not a good golfer but and I do a bogey I can beat him on one hole but if we play 72 for the tournament I, I, I'll be a hundred under him you know it's it's and then when you take your top your if you take your top archer that's shooting really well, you know, he can absolutely blister somebody. But when you get into a three-arrow match, how many times have you seen that? I mean, how many times a lot that yeah. the top archer gets eliminated? Um, it's just it's just changed the whole, again, the psychology of, of, of tournament and the chances of winning. It has opened the door uh, to, you know, for, for anyone. And that has, you know, it's a double-edged sword, right? Because I think that that helps tell interesting stories for spectators, for television viewers, things of that nature. But it is a fundamentally different sport in that regard. Right. It'd be like, uh, you know, even in motorsports, Indy 500, you get a half a lap lead, uh, you know no one's going to probably catch you. But... If if everyone's got this, you know, everyone's nose to nose all the way around, you don't know who's going to win. Or uh, another way to look at it would be if you had uh, a couple of sprint races after the 500 to determine the actual winner. Yeah, because, yeah, we'll put you in a different car and, and see. With that but said, it, it, though, I, I think that the fundamentals of the shot and the... While the psychology may have changed, the fundamentals of the shot are still just as important now as they were back then. So let's shift into talking about coaching a little bit because of the the role that you've played and continue to play with developing shooters. Um, talk about that a little bit from the standpoint of what Daryl Pace is doing in archery today. And then I'd like to talk about some of the other things you're doing as well. Um, I mean, I, I help out 
coach, you know, kids. And it's a, if, if you can get an art, you know, if you get an archer early, it's easier to, to teach them right from the beginning than it is the correct problem. Oh, yeah. So your fundamentals when you when you're teaching a student, um, walk us through what those are. Uh, is is first thing is, is you know using a mirror, video, whatever, and get at number number one, the most important thing in archery, get them in line. If they're not in line, um, not being in line creates all the other uh, other factors. Yes, uh, and I learned and I learned that back in the seventies by. Back in the day when we shot the FIDA, and if you remember the Nationals, you'd shoot a FIDA and then they'd, you'd be all mixed up all over the field. After the first FIDA, they regrouped you, top target all the way down. There'd be, you know, 50 targets with with all the archers. And if you started at the top, top target, and watched and walked down the line at each archer, the further you got down the line to the lower scoring archers, the further out of a line the archers were, and the worse the form got. So, I the thing I teach first is is you got to get. It's not uh, teach them on an air bow first uh, if you can. Um, you, you know what the air? You familiar with the air bow? Oh sure. Is is in a, a mirror or like I say, a video or a camera or something, and let them see what they're doing because if if they're out of a line. Yeah, you know, plucking a string. They always said, "Well, what causes plucking a string?" You know, hands—the hand that comes away from the face. What causes that? Fundamentally, it's alignment. It all comes back to that. Right. Right elbows forward. It's short, so your your force line from your elbow to the pressure point or to your bow handle is forward. So as soon as you release that forty or fifty pounds, whatever you're holding, your hand's going to fly out. It's all revolves around the alignment. It's actually fairly simple physics if you think about it that way. Yes. Today, for fun, you still shoot occasionally or do you not shoot much? I I shoot every once in a while, mostly maybe a hunting bow. I I played around a couple of years with compound release just, you know, with the kids, uh in Joe Ed, whatever, but uh, I, I'm doing, you know, I, I did it for what, almost 30 years competitive and, uh, like any, like anything, I'm doing things that I couldn't do before because I was too afraid of getting hurt or injured or whatever to take me out of the archery competitions. So bowling is a, uh, is a big thing that you're doing and have been doing for many years and you're actually pretty, uh, pretty good bowler. Um, Tell us about the similarities or differences, if there's if there are any that uh, relate to archery and bowling. Uh, bowling is very much, almost very much like archery, and I call it the main three factors: form, repetition, follow through. Those three factors will carry, and and that's why archers are usually good in other individual sports like darts, cornhole, bowling. Um, anything that's repetition, form, repetition, follow through. Those three things, if you remember those, those things, you can do well in, in many, many different sports. In bowling, you have oil condition or lane conditions. In archery, you have wind. Right. Once you, once you figure out what the wind drift is and 
trying to guess the guests. Well, in bowling, you're just trying to figure out what the oil pattern is and which ball to use and stuff like that. So, but other than that, once you figure those two, those comparisons out, it's not like indoors because there's no wind, but once you figure those two out, then it's just a matter of doing the same thing over and over and over. If you hear what I said, form, repetition, follow through. Yes. A lot of people doesn't re- do not consider that so important. The fault, my brother, my older brother used to say something. This is way back in the 60s. He says, follow through is the extension of your intention. And that always stuck with me because it is so critical to, to have a good follow through because if you cut that short, you know, are people who shoot an arrow and they think the shot is over, you know, the clicker goes off, you let it go, oh, the shot's over. It's not over. If you look at golfers, and, a, and a, a golf is a good example of this, when you watch high-speed films of a golf ball being hit, you come through with a driver, it hits the ball, one inch after the ball is pat, your club head is past the tee, the ball's gone. So why do you, why do you see... You watch an average golfer, he swings, and the club comes up about maybe 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock. But a professional golfer, what do they do? They go all the way up and wrap around. The, the club is almost pointing all the way back around their whole body. Follow through. It's an extension. Extension of the shot. It If you shorten that and, that, and that's why if you ever watch my bow arm, my bow arm was uh, very unique. That my, if you look at my arm guard on those films, what did you see? It never moved. The bow would go out. You know, my wrist was relaxed. The bow would jump. The bow would the bow would drop. But where was the forearm? Where was my watch? My wrist watch. My arm guard. It never moved. It never moved until the arrow hit the target. It literally looked like you could balance a ping pong ball on there and have it sit there even after the arrow was gone. Right, because if you shorten that up, and what happens is people, most archers that are having trouble, they shorten that shot execution up or that follow through up. Then it, then you start getting closer and closer and closer to snap shooting, and then you you give up on the shot too early. Follow through is the extension of your intention. My thought for a long time, Daryl, has been that we've lost something by not shooting ninety meters anymore. I, I really, honestly believe that 90 meters makes shooters better shooters, you know, just as 70 does for women. 90 meters for men makes shooters better because it doesn't let you fake it. You can't get away with anything at 90. And you, you are one, you are, you hit the nail on the head. 100%. 90 meters, any flaw that you had amplified 70 meters, you can still shoot a weak shot and catch a low, low 10. It'll be a nine, maybe but you can still catch a 10 indoors. You can shoot, a, it's even worse. You can shoot a horrible shot, a weak shot and still catch a 10. But 90 meters, a weak shot was what? An eight, a six. Off the bail? Uh, it could be a yeah, four. You know, it amplifies, that, that extra 20 meters amplifies everything. So if you were to advise someone to do something to really work on really dialing in their form, really dialing in their execution. I would say 90 meters is, is a good idea, uh, but you hardly see anybody using it anymore. 
if you remember well and in my old old articles was my my motto was 90 at 90 that was 90 percent of my practice was 90 meters and the reason was i could shoot the closer distances we shot you know we shoot indoors we get plenty of close distance practice but outdoors 90 percent of my practice was at 90 meters you dialed in 90 everything else would follow if you shoot your 90 meter form at every distance, it will definitely help. Well, to me, it just, it amplifies everything that you do wrong. And if you can correct those wrongs and make them right, then you're going to shoot better. Absolutely. It's noteworthy. The Koreans, uh, for the first time in their Olympic trials process have mostly just gone to 70 meters. Uh, the French did that a few years ago. Uh, it'll be very interesting to see what happens. Uh, between you and me, I, I feel like I'm not seeing the quality. I know the scores are up there, but I'm not seeing the quality of form that I used to see, say, 10 years ago among some of these top-level shooters of today because I think partly they're getting away with stuff at 70 that they wouldn't have gotten away with at 90. Right. Well, again, the equipment has, has leveled. The, the equipment has gotten so good that it's leveled the playing field. You can get away with more. And and it's and the same thing with let's look at bowling balls. I mean, there are hundreds of different types, you know, of bowling balls. That the materials, you know, it it's everyone's scores have went up, but it's narrowed the you know the field. Everyone's bowling over you know two hundreds now. Where in the in the old days, if you averaged one ninety or two hundred, you were a good bowler. If you were you know, and in the seventies, if you were a twelve fifty shooter, you were a good shooter, excellent shooter. So. As those all, what you're doing with the with the technology is raising all the scores up to where there's very little change at the top, but you can get away with more. Daryl, you uh, have been very generous with your time, and there sure. is a ton of stuff I want to talk to you about. I, I would love to just do a podcast with you on each one of your Olympic experiences. So I hope that you'll take the time and, and uh, share some of that with us uh, going forward because uh, there's a lot that Daryl Pace has to offer to the archery community of today, and I really, really appreciate you taking the time now. Sure, no problem.